it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and this week on Beer as a Conversation, we have something a little different. It's still a conversation, but it's a conversation introducing a new podcast we will be starting on our Brewery Pro podcasting channel. Yes, it's a crossover episode. We'll be jumping sharks before you know it. But please listen on. It is still a great discussion and everything will be explained. As Brews News has evolved, we discuss the news of the week and also the backgrounds of industry people, probing their experiences in the industry. While our core audience is people in and around the brewing business, both podcasts also have a much wider appeal as we have learned. Very regularly, though, we get asked to tackle topics that are quite niche and also a little bit technical, or often very technical. These topics are often ones that we would really like to explore, but their content may be a little disconcerting to the regular flow of the Radio Brews News channel. That's one of the reasons we created the Brewery Pro channel as the home for content that has arguably higher value, but for a more limited audience than our general listener. So we'll be launching Brewer's Perspective. It's a podcast in which brewers will discuss topics that they feel are important in the contemporary industry. There will be two main hosts who you'll meet today, but each week they will also be joined by special guests and content experts to provide more in-depth discussions. Our first episode is titled, There's No Five-Second Rule in Brewing and looks at brewing cleanliness and sanitation. It may not sound like the most sexy topic, but it's a very, very interesting and important one. And it also features Aaron McGarrity from Ecolab. But as you'll hear when the episode drops, it's not specifically looking at chemicals, but how brewery design and planning and systems can make sure your beer is at the best that it can be and doesn't get spoiled. So that brings us to this episode of Beer as a Conversation. I wanted to introduce you to the two brewers who will be anchoring the show while having a very interesting beer is a conversation style conversation about the industry and where we are from the brewer's perspective. Both brewers have taken very different paths into the industry and I think a lot of our listeners will find that of itself interesting. But I personally find them very, very valuable resources that I often turn to when I have questions. And so they are ideally placed to take on our pro podcast and take it to the next level. Brewer one is Anthony Clem, who has been a guest on Beer as a Conversation more than once. If you go back in our archives, you'll see that he spoke to us during his time at Lion discussing the very short-lived Forex Pale Ale, for which he can take no blame. But also, we spoke to him during his time as head brewer at Hemingway's in Cairns. However, he's done much more than those two jobs. He started working in the brewing industry over 20 years ago after studying chemistry at QUT. He did a couple of research and development jobs in such things as surfactants and marine paint before his first industry job working for Guinness in West Acton in London. And as you'll hear, he was working on a project to put the widget into a bottle. 
However, since returning from the UK, he has worked for Lion at West End in Adelaide in the laboratory and various other roles within the Lion Group, such as packaging quality, brewing team leader, brewer at Napstein and also at Forex. And they're some of the issues that we will be discussing in the Brewer's Perspective podcast. More recently, he worked as the quality brewer at Forex and the head brewer, general manager of the brewing business at Hemingways in far north Queensland. He is a member of the quality committee for the IBA and on the judging panel for the Royal National Agricultural Show in Queensland. He recently started a business as a brewing consultant with the intent to give brewery owners the capability and insight to live their dreams of building a craft brewery, creating consistently great quality craft beer. The second host is Marcus Cox. He was recently he recently returned from America and was hired by Newstead Brewing in January 2021 to add some fundamental quality structures to that business, but he quickly rose to become the head brewer in March. His career as a brewer commenced at Victorian Microbrewery Three Ravens back in 2003, with next to no experience, as you'll hear him admit. But he quickly positioned the brewery as a leader in the second wave of microbrewers in this country. He was part of the founding team at Thunder Road Brewing in Victoria. At the commencement of that position, he had the opportunity to design, install and commission the Thunder Road Brunswick site. In 2014, that brewery opened and entered its first beers in the Australian International Beer Awards and they were awarded Best Medium Sized Brewery in Australia. In August 2016, he relocated to Pittsburgh where he became head brewer at the soon-to-be-established Mindful Brewing Company. During his time in the US, he also helped to re-establish and become vice president of the local Master Brewers Association of America chapter. He's been a frequent flyer to Japan as a judge. He's the first Australian to judge at the European Beer Star Awards in Munich, and he's been a 14-year member of the IBD. So they're the hosts of the Brewers Perspective podcast, both very interesting guys, both willing to express an opinion and both very quality and precision focused in their approach. And they are the guests on this great conversation about the state of beer and brewing. I hope you enjoy it and find it as interesting as I did. Marcus Cox, Anthony Clem, welcome to Beer is a Con... Conversation slash Brewer's Perspective. Good morning, First episode. Matt. Good morning. Marcus, so we, we were just very quickly talking off mic that you, you're a, uh, the first time on Brewer's Conversation. Anthony's had a couple of appearances. So we might start with, uh, with you. How did you get into the brewing industry? I know that um, in, in my intro I've given your bio, but you know, tell us a little bit how you actually came to be a brewer. Uh, I didn't really take the homebrew route, so there's probably a deviation there. It's, it's long enough ago that people that weren't formally qualified could still get gigs as, as brewers. Um, I was working in hospitality. To be fair, you can still do that now, but one of the things that we're going to talk about on a brewer's perspective <laughs> is uh, whether that's still the safest route to do it in the very competitive environment. So, But anyway, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut back, you off. Back in the early 2000s, it was... <laughs> it was it, safe. It, it was the only way. It was the only way. Yeah. Um, so I was definitely part of that. I was working in hospitality. And um, one of the bar flies at the pub I was working at, I was a bar manager. Do we want to name check that? Is it still around? The Peacock Inn Hotel okay. in Melbourne, in Northcote. Um, first venue in the area to have Coopers on tap. And it was such early days that it was, um, if you don't like the beer, it was money back. <laughs> okay, wow. And this is, you know, 2000, 2002 I'm talking about. So 130 years into Coopers, they still had to offer a venue. That was my yeah. personal guarantee. Okay. Um, yeah, we had to hit our rebates, so. 
So there's a. I'm just making a note that that's another thing we can talk about. But so, what saw you jump the bar and go to go into the brewery? I did do a little bit of home brewing, but it wasn't very serious. And one of the bar flies was kind of like a drinking buddy and a mentor. Uh, and he'd do been. Do we sp- want to name him? Uh, he's or probably her? he's probably long past to be honest. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, like a proper seven year old bar fly. Right. Um. He was friends with the guys at Three Ravens and they at that stage had their informal invite only little bar downstairs under the engineering company that, that owned it. Yep. And he invited me down there for a beer. Um, and it was very informal. There was no expectation. Um, I hit it off with the guys and I think within two weeks we were talking about when do you want to start work. Because they were brewing, they were engineers who were brewing themselves at that stage. They bought the brewery because it was going to close. Is that no? The, well, if it was going to close as a, a plasma factory or something, um, I think actually the tanks, the original tanks, were for bovine growth hormone. <laughs> um, so it was, it was more an option. There was good c- COP. Um, done. Yeah, you'd have so. Um, a very good claim. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was very much coming off a. Very low base in terms of experience on my part, being zero. Getting the gig pretty quickly, I was just the right side of 30, so there was you know, a perfect time for a career change. Um, they, they hired me on, on Future Promise more than the reality, and the extension of that was the second or third day. I'd been also one of Mountain Goat's first customers at that same pub, um, okay. just for package. The yep. draft Mountain Goat back then was a dream. Um, so I knew those guys through the sales routes, um, so I spoke to Dave and the second day I worked at um, Three Ravens, I actually spent it at Mountain Goat getting the idiot's guide to how to run a brewery. So after four or five hours down there, they sent me on my way with some beers and that was, that was the tuition. Coming at it from that background, which is one of the things we'll be talking about over, the, uh, over this series, is were you able to make good beer from the start and you know, or did you make a lot of mistakes and that was your very hidden in those days... Uh, learnings could have, could have been more hidden um, <laughs> so those guys were making beer by themselves so the engineering company was under under the guidance of uh, Ben Patterson um, he was the head process engineer at the time um, they were getting busier and busier mainly with work up in in Queensland or in Queensland sorry mm-hmm. um, with oil and gas really starting to take off back then they were they wanted to keep that side project working so you know I, I was working with a process engineer and a team of other en- engineers and if I wanted to fix or change some pipe work we had a, a, a pipe drafts person on staff it was and they were they were happy to let me run for six or 12 months figuring it couldn't get any worse until i got the tra- uh, until i got the traction to actually start to make some improvements and how did you learn how, how did you sort of self-improve um in, in in that environment that's very much my model i just look at things going around and around and around and after four or five times i know how they work within reason and i i can offer improvements one of the best decisions I ever made was to get somebody that had marginally more experience than me on board. So Matt Inchley, uh, who's now a Keiju, joined pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And he ran, or he performed most of the brewing activities and I had stepped back to be more of the brewery manager. So I had even more latitude to teach myself how to brew and about the industry. And where did you go to learn? Because that was still very early days of, you know, sort of internet online availability of information. This is all on the job. This yep. is all working with the en- engineers, um, some short courses. Some, I got to know Pete Aldred pretty well, um, which, which came very, uh, was very handy later on. That was it. 
yeah, as you said, the internet didn't really exist as, a, as the tool it does now. Uh, so you've never done formal study? Because I know you've worked for the Master Brewers Association of America and things. have you ever done any formal study? Not, not to any, um, anything, anything above a certificate level. Okay. You did go on to work for Thunder Road and you were part of the team that set up uh, the, the, that brewery, which for a lot of craft people, they might be, you know, uh, there are views. It's a brewery that is a polarising in the purist community, but it's fair to say that Philip, is a, um, who, who founded it, is fastidious. Um, and it, you would have been put through your paces, put through the ringer. satisfying yeah. him um, that, that you could do quality, both install, procedure and, and beer. Yeah, that was, yeah, I managed to spend six years, six and a half years at Three Ravens. So it was a very different Marcus that walked out the door to the one that walked in. Yep. Um, so relatively mature. Um, we'd done a lot of contract manufacture at Holgate. I hung out with the, the Vami guys at that time. The mm-hmm. Victorian Association of Microbreweries was kind of a, around. So I had a much better industry perspective. We were starting, Three Ravens were starting to sell up, up as far as Brisbane, all the way down around the coast in, in Victoria. I also managed to not be hired by Philip, so thinking back, that probably helped. <laughs> so a- Andrew Dunn, who was in, involved in the uh, Fat Yak kind of conception, mm-hmm. um, probably more from the brand side than anything, um, was the leader of the team, and he hired me, so I kind of snuck in under the radar. Uh, Philip had hired an American brewer, um, Mark Harvey Kenny, yep. um, and they were looking for somebody that would be complementary to him, so... Um, I didn't have to deal with Philip in the first month and I was kind of on the payroll before he realised. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, I might bring Anthony in now um, because, Anthony, you came at it from a, a slightly different route and without, you know, it's not a loaded um, description, but you studied chemistry um, and worked in uh, surfactants and marine paint before getting a job uh, with one of the... Uh, uh, larger brewers in in the UK and came back to Australia worked for Lion and uh, there are a lot of craft beer people who would be sort of saying that's an appropriate job for uh, surfactants and marine paint um, unfairly um, I, I might add because it, you, you were a senior quality brewer for Lion um, and making some very good beers uh, champion uh, beers and then went to Hemingways but you came at it from a very different perspective into the industry than Marcus did. You had the science background and applied it to brewing. Is that a fair? Yeah, pretty pretty fair assumption, Matt. So, I guess you know, chemistry degree, you know, one of those things where you know, growing up as a kid, I needed to figure out how everything worked, and chemistry was sort of an outlet there. Um, but uh, I guess when I left. When I left university, I didn't really have much of an idea of what I wanted to do, but R&D was really interesting. So I, I did you know, do a couple of R&D jobs and then you know, got, the, got the gig in. Uh, when I was over in the UK, I got the gig at Guinness for like, you know, it was just a small contract, but you know, it got me into the industry. And what was that doing? Well, we were actually just setting up a little pilot um, production line, pilot packaging line. They were... Uh, trying to put Guinness in bottles at that stage and they developed like this rocket widget thing for the bottles that sat in the neck of the bottle and um, you know, pushed nitrogen into the top of the beer when you opened it. So uh, it was just setting that up and they just wanted 
you know, scientists. It was like a bad joke. It was like <laughs> two Australians, South African and a Frenchman. And, you know, we we're all working together on this little Guinness project that they wanted in their R&D facility at Acton there. So, And did that ever see the light of day? Because I don't remember it. It did, but I think it was only very, very brief. Uh, they were like 330 mil bottles and they did have the rocket widget and they did have a full sleeved, so they looked nice and black and they had the uh, the creamy head on the top, but I don't think it ever uh, was any showed any longevity. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, they invested a lot of money, and we had a we had a great time setting it all up and getting it involved. But uh, yeah, I don't know how successful in the end it was. <laughs> had you brewed before that? Like, had you done home brewing or been involved in oh, brewing? Probably not a lot of home brewing. Just like Marcus as well, I dabbled. We did, you know, just a few things. Every at uni. student does Every it. Every uni student kid. does it. Yeah, <laughs> especially when you're doing a lot of process chemistry and stuff like that at uni we were like oh yeah we've got to give this a go and you know we'd do beers and ginger beers and um you know poor uni students just something to have a couple of tallies before you before you head out on the town those types of things but uh that was that was pretty much it I didn't really do a lot of home brewing and I still probably don't do I don't do a lot of home brewing because I've always had access to, to to kits and uh bits and pieces where you know you could do enough um, you know, exploration and experimental type stuff to to not do it at home. So what was it about the brewing industry that, because it, it sounds like you went to this Guinness job as a person with the requisite skills to take on that job as opposed to being lured into an industry. Um, what was it about the industry that's seen you stay there for over 20 years? I guess, uh, you know, you can only drink so much surfactant and paint, really. Um, no, it's the. I think it's the people. Is, is that a code word for um, hazy IPAs? It could, yeah, it could be. Pretty, pretty chunky Sorry. hazy IPAs. No, uh, I think it's the people within the industry. I've just uh, spent you know, the last 20 years meeting and working with such amazing people that I just – you know, so down to earth and genuine and, um, you know, all got a common interest. We just love great quality beer. You know, it's always been about the people, I think, and, um, you know, in the end, sharing a great quality beer at the end of the day is just the reward. So, uh, yeah, that's why I've stayed. <laughs> well, it, one of the reasons that... Uh I was interested in working with both of you and all of the guests that we're going to be having on is the different approaches, your, your different entries into the industry, but then you're two people who I learn a lot from uh, from the because of your focus on the, the, the technical side of brewing and, you know, the, the quality side of brewing and, you know, your, your, your views on that. Um, so I'll, I'll start with this question. With both of you coming into the industry with such different backgrounds, what do you think is more important, the art of brewing or the science of brewing? When I think about the art of brewing, it, it gets boring pretty quick, so I'm probably going to lean towards the technical side. But How do you mean boring? Well, it, it becomes technical. Um, so that, that you know wizard world of mm. brewing and all the hopes and dreams of everybody uh, fade pretty quickly. And, and the first thing I think of is, what am I trying to make? How much money have I got? Who's going to drink it? What does it have to look like? Does it ascribe to a style guideline? So for me, it's, it's almost 100% technical. Mm-hmm. It, the dream of the beer normally comes from the marketing department and they have a lot of ideas that never make sense. 
and it's it's up to you to probably pick those that are viable as as a brewer. But yeah, definitely, the, the technical brewing is is for me pretty much the whole thing. How does that figure into the business? Because you, you, that, that's the thing, as we've discovered. Well, as as I've observed, you can't divorce the story and the marketing and the dream and all of that that has to be infused in the consumer's mind. Yeah. But does that sit in the bottle of the beer or does it sit on the label of the beer? It, it depends where that bottle sits or yeah. that can sit. That's, that's one of the things. So who the market is and where, where it ends up being sold. Um, uh, for the most part, it's on the outside. Uh, it's, in, it's, it's part of the, the person that's drinking it. Um, so that, that brand story and that identity set flows through there. But there's a point where the liquid has to be what it says on the can, what you thought it was going to be, has to go to the right person, has to have cost the right amount, uh, has to be fashionable or not fashionable, depending on the kind of brewery you're working for. Um, I, I find myself very open to working in different kinds of breweries with different expectations of the product range. Mm-hmm. I don't. When I was living in the States, I had to unlearn a lot of things to make hazy beers it's a completely different mindset to what i'd been doing for 15 years so i had to start to just compartmentalize things and, and take them away and saying you know those other 99 beers that i've been styles i've been making they're not going to work here i need to kind of work out and i had the latitudes being in a, i was in a brew pub situation that time to to work through the first 10 or 20 hazies before i got it right mm-hmm. um and then even what the prevailing logic was for how to make them isn't what i went with so I guess that, that was still technical, but it was probably a little bit looser because the concept wasn't necessarily built off a, a solid technical base. Anthony, how about you? Science or magic? I think you know the answer. <laughs> but, uh, well, why? You know? no, I see the magic and the art being in, in the brand and the creativity of putting, you know, of putting recipes together that you know, are going to appeal to people. But for me, it's the it's the fundamentals of you know the technical side of brewing that you need to get right in order to provide that trust to the consumer. Mm. So the brand is providing a level of trust to the consumer, and behind it, in my opinion, should be a very technical and very process driven process where you're consistently creating that that. Um, flavour profile that you're trying to achieve and that the customers and consumers are, are wanting. So when they go pick up a, a can or go to their local, that they, they're trusting that that is what they're going to get when they, when they ask for that. So, uh, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot about the science and that's my sort of background with, you know, the IBD study I've done as well as all the chemistry. But, uh, you know, I think... Those fundamentals are what make up you know, great and consistent quality beer. With both of you having worked in the industry for you know two decades, you've, you've essentially been involved. I regard the modern craft beer movement um, as really starting in 2000 with this Little Creatures, which really popularised it. There were breweries you know, in the 80s and the 90s. In the late 90s, we started to see the early flowerings, but it was really Little Creatures for me that brewers... Um, were in, people were inspired into brewing and so 21 years um, of craft beer in Australia we've seen such a rapid evolution of the attitudes to it you know in the early 2000s it was the craft beer revolution and we're making something different malt water hops and yeast and as we've seen we've seen business models we've seen what's acceptable 
within craft change. We've seen so many changes of in attitude. Where do you both think that we are sitting? You know, in, in the evolution um, of craft beer, have we almost closed the circle? back to where it was 20 years ago or you know, Anthony where are where, where is the craft beer industry at the moment I think it's certainly moved away from the the purest uh, approach where it was you know malt hops um, yeast some water uh, I'm glad you could uh, name those four key ingredients <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> if I couldn't it'd be there'd be a bit of a worry uh, no it's certainly moved away from that in in that you know the guys are being a lot more creative in the way they put uh, the way they put beers together, uh, and you know to me it seems like it's rapidly changing all the time. We're not, you know, we're introducing new beer styles, and you know we're not looking back at the you know, the old beer styles where you know the the brewers are really looking to create something different for their consumers. So, uh, you know, it's really interesting and uh, exciting times uh, in that you can get lots of different, uh, lots of different flavours when, you, when you're cracking open a beer. But, you know, I do see that we are having, you know, some fundamental quality issues still that, you know, it's not, it's not something we really want to see, you know, going forward because consumers will then potentially go back to something they know rather than try something new. But, uh, yeah, interesting times. We're adding, we seem to be adding lots of different things rather than the, uh, the fundamentals. <laughs> um, but, you know, and that can be good and can be bad. And I might come back to that, um, uh, particularly uh, with, with, with reference to Lyme. But, Marcus, how about you? Because, uh, you know, we, we've seen craft beer, one of the foundational styles of craft beer in in the early 2000s was the IPA and there was that romanticized story of that this is a beer that was brewed to um, send and it was really borrowing a 200 year old story and trying to legitimize this thing that was had no semblance into the the original IPAs um, but it was a lovely story that sold the vision of craft beer is that a fair very much so. Okay. Yeah, and it was summed up for me once when I was visiting the UK and I, I jumped on the train and, and went to Burton-on-Trent to visit. Yeah. And there's nothing there. Well, not Ed, Pete Brown's um, uh, Hops and Glory is a tremendous, you know, recounting of the IPA story and uh, selling the vision and the romance of it, but then the... You can't drink the tap water and <laughs> there's, there's one brewery and it's Bass and they have a kind of... Um, uh, down in Victoria, we have a Sovereign Hill where they have the, the guys made out of straw that are animated by clockwork. It wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> uh, it was incredibly flat. You could still see the train lines and understand the uh, industry that had taken place there. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, it was a moment in time and that moment's changed. But we're seeing that even with some of the, you know, inverted commas, sour styles, you know, where people are saying this is a Berliner vice or this is a, you know, um, a traditional style when it just because it's got lacto in and it's been soured, you know, the, the pH has been reduced, but then that's about the only touch point with some of those traditional styles. And yet we still feel the need to weave this narrative around something that is a modern invention. Well, from from a, a winning awards point of view, if it fits the style guidelines, you you call it whatever you have to call it to win. <laughs> if if a, a supermarket's looking for a particular 
subset in a category, mm. then you can convince them that's what you've made. Um, just to go back quickly to the IPA, yep. there was a moment in time when, you know, uh, looking from that 1850s period all the way through where the hopping waned based on availability and cost and then at that period you're describing the early 2000s it went nuclear and once something's gone nuclear and you're left in the remnants now the the pursuit is is lower bidness Mm. and where it was 60 80 100 ibu numbers going around just a few years ago now you're more likely to find a lead ipa brand sitting at 20 30 or 40 Um, and it's more about the, the aromatics of the hops than the bidness. Um, the, the mineralic profile is less important. The colours back to very, very pale generally. It's a, it's a very blurry situation, but yeah, with IPA specifically, it, it blew up and then it was reborn. Without getting too philosophical, uh, modern IPA is still IPAs in that understanding that IPAs were hop-driven, bitter you know, beers. That was a moment in time, and you know, as, as Pete Brown's book and, and Mitch Still, mm. Still's book have referenced, um, that that was a very small window. It was the result of you know, transport meeting industrialization and having access to those particular materials for and particular purposes associated with that at the time. And it hasn't been like that for a very long time. So the idea that things are constantly changing is, is very interesting. But as I said, instead of the, the rationale being, I guess as brewers now, we have access to everything. So, or at least we think we do. So a lot of the decisions, you know, you have this idea that I'm in the candy store and I can make beers with whatever I want. I don't mean just necessarily crazy things, but hop varieties and malt varieties. You're not tied into the stuff that got grown down the road uh, like you would have been in particular periods. And generally speaking, it's not particularly efficient to ship water. So most countries and, and cities and zones tend to have their own beer manufacturing. So trying to bring those styles to that centralised manufacturing in one particular area is probably the target, mm. um, just for shipping and logistics. And everything can go on a ship now and get there as a grain instead of get there as a beer. It's a little bit naive to, to suggest this, but is that, you know, should we be using more local ingredients to have a distinctly Australian style? I mean, Australia grows hops. We, uh, you know, one of the largest barley growers in the world. Um, and yet you've got brewers importing hops and, you know, floor-malted, uh, you know, English uh, malts and to try and replicate styles. Should we be using Australian ingredients and seeing what we can create with that, both from a national perspective but then also in terms of the, you know, we, we talk about sustainability and so many brewers talk about, you know, putting solar panels on the roof to lower their carbon footprint. Should we just be not shipping dry ingredients around the world, um, do you think? It's very challenging. Um, I found myself straddling the, the midpoint where you use enough of the local stuff to kind of build the beer and then for the nuance of the flavour you bring in what you need to, to do that. Um, again, with this this requirement of, of every brewery to make every style of beer, at least in theory, um, it, it makes, in particular in Australia, where the, the traditional style beers have fallen away and nobody really has any points of reference for them. I've had the pleasure of resuscitating beers from... from a hundred-year-old books before. Thunder Road. Uh, Correct. Uh, yeah, Phillips had uh, interest in history. Uh, there was some really interesting stuff that was done there. Uh, and we, you know, we, we had the brewer's notes from the side panel of the, the brewery log. It was an amazing set of documents. And we made those beers with the permission of, of his family. It wasn't particularly good. <laughs> so, you know, it got us a tap at, at Young and Jackson's in the, in the middle of Melbourne. Um, because nobody else could offer that beer and the ye olde thing was very much the selling point. And it was a novelty. And, and it was very much a novelty. Um, and that was all Australian malt. We, we took grain and uh, made our own amber malt at the bakery next door 
Um, we used predominantly not particularly sexy Australian hops and some UK stuff that was very old. As you said, a novelty. Um, we don't have the brewing tradition here. Is you know from the consolidation period, it's all it's all lager beers. Yeah. Um, there are three probably unique yeast strains that smaller brewers maybe don't use, which would be something to use if you wanted to. Codename yeast A or yeast B, whatever they call them, in the big breweries. Without that history here, I think it's very hard to have that lineage. Um, and that coupled with the, the demands that every brewery makes every style of beer, you're kind of stuck. How much of recreating an old beer style is, um, you know, one of those tropes? You know, that it's attention-getting, it's interesting, you've got a story behind it. But as you said, they're not necessarily going to sell outside of that one-off um, novelty factor. How, how much do you think that some of the styles that are going through an upswing at the moment are just modern equivalents of that, where they don't—they're not recreations of historic, historical styles. Histi- historical historical. Style as well, yes. um, but they are um, just a blip because they're momentarily interesting, but not very good. Some of them are smaller blips than others. Yeah. And, and brewed IPA is obviously the, the the scapegoat for this. You know that aspect of the conversation. I'm it, disappointed that brewed IPA didn't. I, I actually thought it should have had legs. I'm a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. You know, talking about the hazy beers, there's an incredible diversity amongst those. Um, as I said, they're, they're technically challenging to make. They're different to make to every other style of beer. They're one of those things that, that developed organically in a region and then it went through the, the kind of homebrewing level of certification with the BJCP style, guide, style guidelines. And then obviously more recently became part of the, the general, you know, formal professional brewers style guideline set through the Brewers Association. Um that kind of stuff's a little bit more of a blip. It'll probably be rationalised. Um, I thought the exploding can situation might have uh, accelerated that move a little bit. No, because it's to your be fault case. as a consumer because uh, you haven't refrigerated your beer. And, and the, you know, the carbonated re-fermenting milk model is often <laughs> cited. Um, again, when you sit down from the brewing point of view and you say, okay, I've been tasked to make this type of beer and you write the brief for the beer, if you are going to make something that's likely to explode, you try and make it a small explosion. You try and limit the area of impact. Um, and, you know, these are the things you tick off when you're defining a product's um, oh, it's definition, you, when you're making the definition of a product. Up. Okay. Uh, are we going to see beer cans with little Fence. pressure valves? <laughs> yes. Like pressure relief valve on the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Top of beer can. I mean, I'm assuming that when the first person came up with the idea of champagne, they had some packaging issues. <laughs> and then they moved on to that particular packaging model that's, that stuck around for a couple hundred years. Yeah, um, but they're very yeah. thick, very heavy bottles. Um, You're already paying ten bucks for a can. It's it's only eleven dollars at that point. <laughs> Anthony, I, I'm going to step back to the question I was going to ask you because you know, looking at the malt water hops and yeast, um, I think it was 2008. Lion, were, were you working with Lion in yep. 2008? Yeah. So when they developed the Natural Beer Promise, that again was very early days of craft. Um, interest was you could sort of see the writing on the wall for mainstream beer and they were trying to not craftify beer but counter some of those perceptions some of the promise that craft beer had about you know being better and purer and things like that and so Lion came up with this natural beer promise where they took um, as much as possible uh, tetra hops out of beers you know they only used five ingredients and they were open about sugar but you know talking about it and um, Han Dry couldn't because it used enzymes and it was regarded as not being a natural 
product. It was very forward thinking and very ahead of its time. But there must have been a little bit of you know from a from a brewer's perspective who would have been in seeing some of those decisions and feeling the negativity that craft brewers were pointing to these soulless big brewers. When you see what some craft brewers are willing to do now, there must be, you know, a part of 2008 Anthony that's face palming himself um, at how quick at how much the industry's changed. I do vaguely remember copying a fair bit of fair bit of crap um, about you know some of the gear that we used to add as big brewers <laughs> to uh, to beers to you know make sure that uh, maybe head retention or you know, something like that is you know is kept at a premium and the beer looks fantastic in the, in the glass. It was taken out of Forex Gold Absolutely. and it wouldn't retain its head because the Tetra Hops was important um, with a beer of, of that character in being foam positive. Absolutely. Tetra, I mean, a small amount of Tetra Hop and there was only about 5 ppm, I think, in there in that beer. But that that alone was enough to give it, you know, extremely good head retention. And so when you do pour it across the bar in a glass it looks fantastic uh and to achieve the same level of head retention you have to go to a lot of uh you have to do a lot of different things to to ensure that you do that without head you know without adding tetra hop so um you know in a very large brewery that is very heavily automated that's quite difficult to achieve uh, in a very short period of time, so we, overnight we were asked to just remove you know, all the things that make it look and <laughs> look fantastic, uh, and and do something different. So that was that was really challenging, but it was also very interesting in that you know we were you know we were doing some heavy thinking about exactly how we could modify the brew house or uh, make some changes so that we could you know maybe soften the boil and you know increase you know leave foam positive proteins in in solution and you know do lots of different things to make sure we were we were you know keeping those beers at at um you know the visual that the consumer was expecting but in the end that didn't happen but when you look at that that was in response to this narrative and rhetoric that that the craft industry was using about being better and purer and things like that, and you look at a lot of those same things now. Oh, brewers yeah. are embracing oh, for exactly the same reasons and with the same justifications that ten years ago the industry was against. I was I was absolutely shocked. I was reading an article. I can't even remember what magazine it was in, and a, a brewer was describing how they were adding Tetra Hop, and they were a craft brewer, and so. I, well, hang on a minute. Oh, brewed IPA using enzymes. Yeah, yeah brewed IPA using the same enzymes <laughs> yeah. that Han Super Dry uses to uh, produce low carbon, and, and you know pretty much the same as what the US US guys were doing for all their low carb beers as well. So, uh, I, I think it comes down to you know, there's a fair bit of creativity out there, and it's availability of raw materials as well. So if everyone's got that availability of those raw materials then you know, someone's eventually going to go, oh, what happens if we do this? Is everything fair game these days? Is there anything oh, that's I not I get craft? the impression that everything is fair game <laughs> at the moment. Marcus? Because I know you laugh whenever I say uh, you know, at, at the moment or that we're in a post-craft, post-craft. world. Post-craft. And it's, uh, yeah, post-craft. I can, I can definitely feel that. 
one of the kind of anomalies with me is I started my brewing career at Three Ravens working for chemical engineers. So they were always very open um, to do whatever was needed. It was normally in, in the scheme of us fixing process defects like head retention. We would add a head retention additive because we'd identified a problem and we gave it the big band-aid and we tried to wean ourselves off that over time. So that, that was very much the way they thought and that's the way they taught me to think. So was craft a lie? Like the idea of craft, was it a lie that we willingly told ourselves? Well, no, I mean, you know, once a week something blew up and we all got covered in shit and, <laughs> and your deliveries were late because the, the $5,000 van broke down and that, that's craft. Yeah. Um, well, that's punk. That's punk. <laughs> Somewhere in between. Well, was, yeah. was, was craft the punk of its day where it had a very brief meaning, you know, but then very quickly became something else? It's a, yes. Okay. I, I could definitely see that happening. There was a, a moment in time, um, and then that was distorted very quickly. And, you know, things like Napstein, for me, completely threw that up that, that time ago. Um, being out at that brewery, drinking that beer from the, at the winery. Um, drinking well, Anthony, that, you were a brewer at Napstein. Yeah, it's brewer at Napstein Drinking that, that one keg of beer that was there, that was <laughs> the best tasting beer in the world, the only <laughs> place you could get it. I think the, the brewer that was there at the time when I visited um, had to make a pull a delivery off a truck and he left me alone with the tap. <laughs> that was um, so that was, that was a pretty good trade-off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know that obviously being a line company at that stage and, and having that ownership, making this high level of craft beer and then with it making a lager interesting, interesting uh, was mind-blowing. You know, one of my views that I've espoused in listening to brewers on both sides of the, the argument is something like pasteurisation, which still hasn't been adopted by many craft breweries in their own venues some of them are doing it when they're producing elsewhere um, because their contract partner um, pasteurizes but there's still a consumer um, rejection of it there's still a lot of brewers who want to passionately argue against a tool like pasteurization as being not craft and I've got this theory that anything that small brewers can't do because they can't afford to or they don't have the resources or they don't have the means to is what's not craft. As soon as they can do something or as soon as they see a benefit of it, that slides very, very quickly. You know, what, what, what's, I'm throwing that out there as my controversial opinion. Maybe not the only one. Well, so pasteurisation is a scale. So mm. a lot of those negative associations are made from a time when high adjunct beers that were expected to have a year and a half shelf life were pasteurised to hell. Um, and that... The base beer was commodity-driven, so it wasn't necessarily the fanciest ingredients, and, and the pasteurization level was was thought up to ten or eleven. Um, not, you know, it's just in terms of the volume mm. uh, yeah. scale. Um, so negative associations, uh, probably with the U.S. leading and smaller, maybe regional, city-based European breweries, uh, that the cost of pasteurizations come down radically. Um, you still need a very clean beer often with low levels of control level of solids, very low DO, dissolved oxygen, to get a good pasteurization. And if you're pasteurizing at the lower end of the spectrum, the flavor impacts off a good base beer are effectively zero. Um, some places will pasteurize and then bottle condition after that, for example. There's, there's a lot of different combinations. Um, but the, the price of pasteurizers at the moment, it's, it's very affordable for a one million, two million litre brewery. Mm-hmm. And do you think as we see more breweries grow through that, you know, we are seeing breweries grow um, and reach that one, two million litre uh, mark. Do you think we will see more of them start to adopt 
you, there, something's going to have to give. Um, you, you can't just keep being reactionary with product recalls forever. Um, sterile filtration's cost inhibitive still. Uh, the consumables aren't, aren't, aren't great. The wastage isn't great. Um, and it, coming to the need for a broader market physically um, and type of uh, outlet. To, to get in every store, if you need to go all the way to Perth, you're probably going to have to do something magical like pasteurise to make the beer stable from there. Or, as some other breweries do coming the other way, refrigerated supply chain. Um, but you need to be pretty big and have a lot of trucks on the road to, to make that viable. I agree. I think it's going to become more and more commercial. And you know, as people are distributing further and wider from their local areas, uh, the expectation is that you know, in order to maintain your brand, you know, you're placing a lot of trust in, in a brand name and people expect good things from it. If you're sending it all around the country and it's not stable, then you know, the variability in flavour profile is going to be significant. Um, so that's the idea of you know, pasteurisation. You essentially make sure that you've got, a stable, you've got a stable beer that can get to consumers a little bit further away than your local area. So I think as your distribution of uh, these smaller brands increases, then they're going to need to consider what they need to do to stabilise their beers and maintain that consistency of flavour profile. Now, just looking at the time, probably need to wind this introduction up. Um, Brewer's perspective, uh, Brewers News has been broadcasting or podcasting for over a decade now, looking at sort of discussing the news and some of the industry-wide things. This podcast is going to be much more technical, looking at a brewer's perspective over the industry and looking at things. What do you guys, you know, you guys are giving up your time to uh, host and create this podcast. What are you guys hoping to do uh, with a brewer's perspective? I think it's it's basically support the industry I love. Like that. I mean, I've been in the industry for a long time and I intend to stay here for a lot longer and I really want to support the industry uh, that I love so much and the people in it as well. So uh, I think we're in, a, we're in a time where, you know, I know education is important and there's not, in the, there's not a lot in the way of education uh, going around uh, for, for brewers. Uh, I know we've got, you know, the TAFE course is, is fantastic. We've got the IBD qualifications, but uh, on the whole, it's, you know, learn on the job, which is great. But, uh, you know, it can, it can also introduce some other normalisations that are, that are just considered, oh, well, that's what we do. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I think my, my aim is to just increase the level of education and support uh, we offer to um, the people in the industry wanting to make great quality and consistent great quality great um, calf beer. Yeah, look, something similar, being um, personally mature in the industry, very much a fan of of giving something back. Um, But also the the extension of that is you can't really um, brew by Googling or or brew by Reddit. And um, it was something I I saw when I was living in the US, but also working now at Newstead with a young team. Um, There's a lot of stuff you forget people don't know. Um, a lot of fundamentals. People have the industry's expanded at such a quick rate. Um, a lot of people have migrated into jobs that maybe they're they're not ready for. They're a year or two out, and they're in those positions already. So just obviously, Anthony and I are very open about our backgrounds, and probably from what you've just heard about pasteurisation, we, we you know <laughs> like particular things. We like stable beers and beers to be refined, <laughs> and, and that's that's you know purely by coincidence what we're both into. But um, 
the idea that just filling those gaps in knowledge, um, giving people access, not just you know an independent source of information. Hopefully, we can provide, um, and it's it's going to be topic specific. And uh, you know, obviously, we're not trying to be a diploma course in in we're not trying to be a master brewers course, but. As Brews News does, we like to ventilate issues and get a variety of perspectives um, about it. But we'll certainly be working with you know all of the formalised training um, providers to encourage people to go through them. But it's from my perspective as a editor of Brews News, it's getting that variety of discussions because there is no one size fits all solution to anything in the industry as we've all already talked about and hearing with you both and our the, the guests that we've planned coming from very different perspectives in the industry raising some of those topics that people can then go and ask the questions themselves yeah i'm hoping we have lots of practical discussions you know lots of you know little gems hopefully that are in there that uh guys that are listening brewers that are listening can go oh yeah oh i'll uh, i'll look into that and neither of you are selling anything yeah well I'm sorry no. <laughs> you, you you do consult um so yes uh, and there will be a link to that but you don't sell anything um so we it's yeah trying to be as non-commercial as as you can and still run a, a, a business but uh that that's the, the line that bruce news always uh wants to walk so uh yeah so uh hopefully there'll be some uh interesting opinions raised so uh anthony marcus thank you very much for joining me for this beer as a conversation very first episode of uh, a brewer's perspective and i uh, look forward to our chat, our very first chat, which is going to be looking at uh, chemicals in the brewing industry. Yeah, cleaning chemicals. And that was your suggestion, uh, Anthony. Yeah, it should be, should be an interesting one. I, I think it is. It's one of those things that has been a little bit normalised. You walk into breweries and you see things and go, hmm, that's not ideal. <laughs> but I think everyone's like, oh, well, that's how it is. And we'll see. So that'll be uh, the, the very first episode uh, next week on uh, A Brewer's Perspective. Thank you both. Thank Thanks, you. Matt. And that was Marcus Cox and Anthony Clem. As I think you'll hopefully appreciate, very wide-ranging uh, topics there, but hopefully regular listeners would still find that very interesting. If you'd like to find out more about the Brewery Pro podcast, which will be dropping next week, you can subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. Just search for Brewery Pro. We'll also be starting a Brewery Pro Facebook group, just like the Radio Brews News one, specifically for feedback on that show and discussion about more technical topics. We will also be looking at doing a more business-focused one there as well. So you might want to, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you may well want to join that one as well. You can email us at brewersperspective at brewsnews.com.au. And as always, let us know what you think either on either the regular producer of Brews News or the Brewers Perspective at brewersnews.com.au. It will find us and the bar blades will flow through that channel as well. 